This is a reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now with the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was bring, being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness is far exceeded in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when we read the Old Covenant, that's when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because, it, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were gathered all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound with the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages, as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven, living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered, because each one of them heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear, each of us, in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, in our own language as we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others sneered and said, They are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, thank you so much for the wonder of your word, that you move and act in history in, in incredible ways. 
that you've done so in order to make us your people. So now we ask by the power of your spirit that you would enliven not just your word, but also our hearts, that by the finger of God that you might write it in us, that we might be those of the new covenant who delight and do your will, that like your son we might say, I delight to do your will. So we need your help this morning, we need your presence, and we're grateful for your love and your grace to us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I don't know if, if you know that a SpaceX rocket was shot up last week, I think, and it had a bunch of satellites on it, and they didn't realize till most of us didn't even notice this, because this kind of thing happens all the time. Well, it had a bunch of satellites on it, and they were apparently so bright. No one had tested them in advance or something, but they were apparently so bright that now they're messing with astronomers' telescopes, all these satellites that they launched out. There used to be a common kind of a consensus or focus before we sent rockets into space. I, when I was a kid, it's starting to seem like a long time ago, but my life as a child was punctuated by moonshots, space rockets. And when it was time to launch something, there was a countdown and everyone was in front of the TV to see it. By the time we got to the space shuttle, sometimes they would go and we wouldn't even notice it. But, but when I was a little kid, you could bring an entire playground to rapt attention in the midst of like playing freeze tag and all this other stuff. All you had to do is go 10, 9, 8, 7. Everyone would join in and start looking up. In the days after Jesus's uh, Ascension, you might say that his ascension created another community looking up. Um, they saw him go and they were looking up and the angel said, this Jesus who has uh, left you is going to come back in like manner. Why are you standing there looking up? But then the days after the ascension, there was another countdown that was happening. You see, Passover pilgrims would stay in Jerusalem from the time they arrived a little bit before <coughs> Passover and they'd stay through the Feast of First Fruits, and then they would, and then after that would begin the countdown to Pentecost, and they'd be there for weeks, camp out around the city. There would be some, you know, if you had relatives, you were staying kind of in the city. If you had, um, if you didn't, you may have be pitching your tent. But all, everyone was there, and they were all kind of, you know, around the city. You're, lo all the, you're looking at the highest point. What are you looking at? You're looking at the temple where the activity is going to happen, and you're counting down fifty days. Ten or in this case, 50, 49, 48, 47. One count a day for a national countdown. Pentecost is a 3D event. And these, uh, by each of these dimensions, God was indicating what he was doing on sending his spirit on this day, the day of Pentecost that we celebrate. Pentecost speaks of God's promises, of God's harvest, and an offer of restoration. And these are things that are still practiced. If you um, are engaged in the Jewish community, you'll see some of these things still going on as part of the keeping of Shavuot or Pentecost. Um, but all of them point to and are fulfilled in what Jesus has done for us. You see, the, the, the Passover when Jesus was crucified was a little bit different from the 1,200 or so that preceded it. But we have to remember that there was a long bed of tradition underneath 
that Jesus was interacting with in this last week of his earthly ministry all the way through to beyond his resurrection. So Jesus kept the feast on the day of Passover. He was crucified on the, at the giving of the Hagiga on the day after the Passover. He was buried in a borrowed tomb just as the sheaves of the first fruit offering were cut down and laid in the temple and left to the Sabbath, Jesus was being laid in the tomb. So Jesus is our first fruits offering. Paul, uh, on, the, on the day of first fruits, he rose from the dead. And so Paul could say of him that he is the first fruits of the resurrection. And as they're counting down these days from, from first fruits, to Pentecost, they are literally counting down the days that they came out of the Red Sea, okay, to the day that they stood on Sinai or stood at the base of Sinai and, and Moses brought the Torah down from Mount Sinai to give it to the people. So they are counting down these days. So if you think about it, Jesus has risen on the day of first fruits, which was also the day that um, Israel had passed through the waters of death of the Red Sea. And they stepped out and their pursuers were buried behind them. Even so, on that same morning, when that victory shout would have been happening in history, Jesus has burst forth from the tomb into life. Um, so now this countdown is going on. The countdown for the giving of the Torah. And all of the, the whole nation, everyone who's gathered, this is one of the three times a year that the nation's together. There's all kinds of people there from all over the place. And when it says there were all kinds of people from all over dwelling in Israel at that time, or dwelling in Jerusalem at that time. They didn't live there full time. They were pilgrims. In other words, God planned this moment very particularly for over a millennia in advance to do this work that he was about to do. And so there they were. Ten, nine, eight, seven. And after Jesus rose from the dead, his disciples went into Jerusalem. And it was that last 10 days before Pentecost. And they joined in praying. They were in the upper room praying and seeking God and waiting as they'd been commanded for a moment that they didn't know when, when they would receive power to be his witnesses. Seven, six, five, four. And so this text begins like, like jet fuel in a rocket. It says... When the day of Pentecost was fully arrived, and it's, it's in the passive tense, it's when the day of Pentecost was being fulfilled. Well, who's fulfilling it? And what is going to happen? It's got, it already peaks just from the very opening words. It peaks your curiosity. There's something about to go on here. What is it? Well, we, want to, we need to know a couple things. We say that um, Pentecost speaks of God's promises. God commanded the Feast of First Fruits back in Leviticus 23, and then later in Deuteronomy, he gives this whole liturgy for the Feast of First Fruits. He gave it to Israel while they were in the wilderness. In other words, they had never been in a land of their own, they were shepherds. They had never been farmers. They didn't even know what farming felt like, and God gave them a harvest feast. That's kind of crazy, isn't it? But God basically said, 
And what First Fruits does, not only that, but First Fruits itself is an act of faith. Because First Fruits is bringing to God the first and the best 50 days before you bring in the tithe of the rest. Basically, what you're doing when you bring your first fruits, you're saying, God, this is an offering, both pledging to you a tithe of something I don't even have yet, but also a reminder of the promise that you have to take care of me. So I'm giving away before I even get. And basically what God is teaching us by doing this is this, is that his promises are so sure, they're more sure than history. Your future with God is surer than history. Your future with God is more certain than your past. Your future is stronger. And that's how strong the the promises of God are. In fact, we have something that, if you study the Bible, is called the prophetic past tense. A child has been born to us. A son will be given to us. Mm -hmm. Power will rest upon his shoulders. God is telling a future event. He's telling it in the past tense because it's more sure than stuff that's already happened that it's going to happen. And so God says, my promises are so sure to you that you can start celebrating now. <laughs> oh, it's good. <laughs> so Pentecost is about God's promises. Pentecost celebrates God's harvest. Pentecost is, uh, it happens on the harvest feast. And so on first fruits, we said you bring him your first and your best. On Pentecost, you, you offer the rest why to cultivate faith but above all we need to know this that pentecost takes place during the barley harvest which um which isn't the only harvest in israel it's just the first harvest in israel it's the harvest that is um you know it begins the set of three harvests so when you tithe from your barley harvest, it means you're trusting God for your wheat harvest, which means that it's trusting God with your harvest for the olives and grapes that come at the end of the year. And all of them finally are presented to the Lord in the Feast of Tabernacles when all the harvests are gathered. Okay? And the temple practices on Pentecost are a picture of this. So what do you read in the day of Pentecost? If you were in the temple in Jerusalem, they bring out one of the five scrolls, and it's the scroll of Ruth. And they stand there and they read it out loud for the entire congregation and the nation. And what is the scroll of Ruth about? It's about a righteous Gentile who is woven into the kingdom of God. And, and when does the book of Ruth take place? It takes place during the barley harvest. And so already woven into this idea is that what Pentecost is going to be about is about a way that the Gentiles come in, be part of the kingdom of God, part of a harvest that comes to the Lord from all the way around the world. And there are two loaves that are presented to the Lord during, during the Pentecost celebration. And the rabbis say that they, are Jews, they represent Jews and Gentiles presented as holy to the Lord. And there's nothing else, <laughs> really, in... in in Jewish literature to fully make sense of that. So why would God be communicating that? Because that's what he's doing. (laughs) So we said there's three kinds of harvests. But what we see in Pentecost is that at first fruits, Jesus was raised. He is the first and the best, presented as a promise for the tithe of the rest. Okay. In other words, that when Jesus is raised from the dead, 
he presents himself to the Lord as the ba- to his father as the basis upon which the rest of us will be raised. And God will provide for himself a harvest of people from humanity like his son who will be raised from the dead, who will be a people to declare his praise, a people for himself. This is part of a harvest that is going to sweep around the world. And on this day, this first day of Pentecost, when the spirit fell, there was a harvest of 3,000 people. And that was just the beginning. And this harvest continued and flows out in concentric circles. So the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost. Jesus is a foretaste of the bounty to come. And then the, the Pentecost harvest is a, a foretaste of the bounty to come. And it expands out until the Feast of Tabernacles. But the whole idea of this is that God has given you his Holy Spirit and made you witnesses for a harvest for the next set of people to come to the kingdom. The Spirit empowers the church to tell the world. The Spirit empowers the church to tell the world. That's the purpose, that this is a harvest that's spreading out, that as you declare Jesus is Lord, that this multiplies in a way that is global in its impact. I know we've asked again, you know, well, we're just a few people. How can that be? We'll see what God does. There were 120 and 3,000 came. What could God do with us? We don't know. Um, But on this particular Pentecost morning, or let's go back a little bit. On the, the last night of the countdown, there's three... Two, on that last night, the anticipation, like I was a kid watching rockets go off on TV, the the anticipation raised exponentially. You see, that night, all the people, all the faithful who had gathered in Jerusalem from all over the world, they got together in groups of, of 10 or more, and they opened up the Torah, and they started in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and they began a Bible study, and they prayed together. And basically what they were saying is, Lord, the first time you sent us the Torah, we, were, we missed it. We were committing idolatry at the moment that the Torah came down from the mountain, and we should have received it. And so, Lord, we're sorry, and we just pray that maybe, maybe this time we'll be ready. And there's this heartbeat, there's this longing, and it's called tikkun. It's to set things right. And so every Pentecost is an opportunity for reconciliation, a Pentecost to set things right. And if just there was some kind of way that we could be set right. You see, the problem with the law is that we're unready to receive it, and we refuse to keep it. The problem of the law is that we can't keep it, but even if we could, the question is, whether we would. You see, to receive the law is to receive the king, to refuse the law is to refuse the king who gives it. And quite frankly, at our very core, we would rather be king ourselves. And so to bow to another king is to be ready to receive his law. To bow to the king who is the king of kings is to receive his law. So on this particular Pentecost morning, as the nation was gathered, as they always did, waiting for the, the, the moment at which Moses would have come down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the law, and praying, Lord, maybe this time we'll be ready for it. God came down like a rushing wind through the 120 gathered in the upper room. And as the believers in Jesus were gathered in prayer, the Holy Spirit came upon them like flames of fire, wind on all of them and flames on each of them. And this was the long-awaited answer to prayer. The Lord had promised a new covenant in Jeremiah 33 that said, I will put 
my spirit within them and write my law upon their hearts. The problem with the law also was that it was external and we had no power to keep it. But with the new covenant, it becomes internal and we have the power to keep it. Not only that, but we have a spirit in us that declares that we're children of God so that every time we mess up, we can say, Abba, Daddy, I need help. And that is the twofold thing that the spirit does or the twofold thing that the law and spirit do together is they work together producing in us lives that are repentant and want to please God. In that powerful text that's too deep to really plumb that Daniel read for us earlier uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul makes a comparison. He says, our trust in you and, and your faithfulness is like, like writing a letter not on a tablet of stone, but on our heart. You're written like a letter on us. In fact, it's as sure as the letter that was written, not the letter that was written by the finger of God into stone, but the letter of the new covenant that was written into the, the fleshy tables of our hearts. He, he kind of combines Ezekiel 33 with that Acts chapter 2. He says, God is writing the tables of the law on our hearts for those who repent and enter the new covenant through Jesus. And then he goes on to say, Jesus unlocks our minds and our hearts to the meaning of the law and the spirit fills us as we worship, gazing on the Father and the Son by the power of the spirit until we're transformed in the likeness of the glory to which we are gazing. We're invited and ushered in and we look on him. And as we do, we're transfixed in a way that transforms. We can't stop gazing on the one that we used to not even be allowed to see. We can't get our eyes off him. So the Lord sends his spirit on us to transform us from rebels against him into workers empowered to labor in this harvest. We become so transfixed that we can't help but declare and people believe. That's that next thing that God does in uh, that last thing that God does in Pentecost. It is a harvest feast. It is a picture of God's promises. It's also an offer of reconciliation. And that comes out very clearly in this text that Biebs read for us. In verses 4 through 11, this whole idea comes forward that when the Spirit comes upon God's people, they declare his mighty deeds. I want us to get this because it doesn't say that they go out and start convincing people. They don't break out more than a carpenter and go through their apologetics. They declare what God has done. You don't have to convince people. You're not even called to convince people. You're called to proclaim God's mighty deeds. Tell the story of what God has done in history and in you, and you'll see lives changed around you. But there's another part of this reconciliation, which is that God is sorting his harvest through our response to the news about Jesus. There's one word for the whole world. If you go through this list of nations, you know, where, where they're talking about um, how is it that we hear, um, you know, aren't all these people who are speaking, they seem like they're all Galileans, but we hear God's mighty deeds proclaimed in the languages to which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia. If you go through that whole list, it's that same list that were the nations that came out because of the Tower of Babel when God confused the languages and confounded them so that they would no longer work together. And that division that was created all over the world. What happens at Pentecost is Babel in reverse. It's a people who were cast about the world because they were trying to proclaim a name for themselves are now united as the Spirit empowers them to proclaim the name of the <laughs> Lord. 
It's babble backwards. You know, when you, we were kids, they used to tell us you can turn, you can play records backwards and hear something else. Um, in this case, you can. You can hear the truth by turning Babel backwards. A world that was divided has been brought together in the name of the Lord. And only the gospel, the, the world is looking for a, a message that brings peace, that brings unity, that brings restoration, that brings dignity to all humanity. But that message is the only message that can do that is a message that comes from heaven. Only the gospel offers both a reason for reconciliation and the power for reconciliation. And so what happens, the, the, the gospel in a way is not novel, it's really normal. Because any time that a king came to power in the ancient world, he would send out his servants and they'd say, get ready, there's a new kingdom, it's not like the old one, so leave your agenda and trust the king. Get ready for him before he arrives because he's on his way. And what the, what the apostles are doing and what Peter does is he stands up and he says, this king is the one that you crucified. This crucified one is, is the ultimate king and judge. He's greater than David because guess what? If you went and you opened David's tombs, you'd see his bones in it. But the Lord said through David, I will not let my Holy One undergo decay. And Jesus, though David is dead, Jesus, though you crucified him, is alive. Christ is risen. Serve the new king. And what happens when we do that today is what happened that day. There's only two responses that you can make. You mock or you believe. It's, it's a very natural inclination to hear a message like that that, that that calls you to bow your knee, to hear that and say, I know better. People don't rise from the dead. That would have to be a miracle. Duh. <laughs> right? It was a miracle. It normally doesn't happen. That's why it's outstanding. People don't, I know better than that. But what it means... Trusting Jesus means that you are no longer the king, that you no longer can trust in the, in the lie or the illusion of your autonomy because you don't really have it. You're not in control anyhow, so you may as well quit pretending, right? It, we, it calls us to surrender our, our bizarre concept of self-rule as you're hanging onto a planet shooting around the sun, right? Receiving a king means humility. It means we've got to face the fact that we're sinners because not only is he the true king, but he's the one that we crucified. This is really problematic. This is really troublesome because when our hearts were fully exposed to the perfect love of God, we couldn't take it anymore and so we nailed him to a tree. And we'd say, oh, if Jesus came back again, just as he did the first time, if he came back in the incarnation, born gentle and kind and good, and he healed and he loved, and he upset all the norms of our society, we'd be right there with him. No, we wouldn't. We'd do it again. The fact that the tomb is empty, the fact that Jesus is risen, but not only underscores our wickedness, it displays his innocence. That we took the only one who was ever innocent, and we put him to death. 
We took the only one who could have stopped us, and he led us. Because he says, no one takes my life from me. I'll lay it down, and I will take it up again. He gave his life willingly for us, because not only is he a king that is great, he's also a king that is good. He's not only a king that's all-powerful, he's a king that's all-kind. And we cannot fathom that kind of love because we've never been loved like that before. But you never have to live without that love again if you'll just trust him. You just bow your knee to him. You say, yes, Lord. And what happens? His spirit fills your life. And you grow in him. And he writes that law in your heart. And all of a sudden, you discover that you're his child and you can run to him every time you sin and say, Daddy, help me. And he'll always pull you up on his lap. And he'll always restore you. And he'll always help you to work and walk more closely with him. But I think that part of the reason why knowing this flow from Pentecost, from Passover to Pentecost, is so important is is because of this. It frees us from this idea that the cross is the end goal. I remember I was telling my story to someone and I got to the place where I accepted Jesus and they said, and so that's the end, huh? I said, no, that's the beginning. (laughs) We've been here half an hour and I've got you to the beginning. That's where eternal life begins. And you are saved for a purpose. And the difficult thing that we need to realize is that he has invited you to come to his cross. But then he invites us to take up ours and to follow him. And we begin that walk because what he's doing, you are saved for a work in the world that only the blood of Jesus and the power of the Spirit can accomplish. You are saved for a work that only the blood of Jesus and the power of the Spirit can do. And he wants to do it through you. And it doesn't require great heroic acts, though some of us may do them. All that he requires is trusting him believing his word, and declaring his goodness. That's it. Well, Lord, don't I have to go to? Well, you may. But Lord, don't I have to study all? Well, you could. But he wants you to trust him, obey his word, and proclaim his goodness. And you'll see lives changed. You'll see captives set free. You'll see the poor become rich in ways that you could not comprehend. You will see the broken healed in ways that you could not imagine. Because he is doing a work through you that only the blood of Jesus and the power of the Spirit can accomplish. So what's it about? Well, it's about not just salvation. It's about surrender to him. And then it's about engagement with people. And that's part of what I want us to get from this and what my heart cry has been as we've been talking about this idea of God's glory resting upon his people is it's never about us. It's always about the world. God has saved you for the world. It's a different way of thinking about it. But he has a great harvest. And he may do abundantly more than we can ask or think through this little bunch. 
as we say yes to him. He's done so much. One of the things that has kept me here over the years has been your commitment and prayer for missions. I believe that God never wants us to lose sight of that. I believe he wants us to add to it. I believe he wants us to add to it our witness to those who are already alongside us in our lives throughout the world. Wherever we go, whether it's the supermarket or the gas station. I believe that he is going to more and more, whether we're infants in arms or whether we're a little bit older than that, that what he calls us to do is obey his word, to trust him, and to engage in the world, to declare his praise. Will you join me in committing to do that and see what God does with us? Let's pray together. Father, on this Pentecost Sunday, we're in awe of your goodness and grace to us. We want to surrender our lives to you, areas that we've held back or kept back. We give to you. Places where fear has has led us to keep the doors locked. Places where despair or hopelessness has caused us to pull the shades and the shutters. We ask that by the Spirit, you would blow them open and let your light in. Places where we've been afraid to talk about it. We pray that you would bring healing and renewal. Places where the air has grown stale and musty. That you would bring the wind of your Spirit. Help us, Lord, to trust you with all that we are, with all that we have. Help us, Lord, to obey you with whatever it is you've given us. Help us, Lord, to proclaim you, not just with our lips, but also with our hands and our feet, with our ears and our eyes, that we would be your love wherever we go. We would add to that the reason for reconciliation, the word of the gospel. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.